Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think people look at Atlanta now and think about, like, the show, or they think about fucking Gucci Mane and rap music. Mm -hmm. But they don't understand, like, the super rich civil rights shit city too busy to hate mm-hmm. all of these things that are tremendously interesting the way that like atlanta's been able to like there's like a powder keg that exists mm-hmm. and they always manage to like just put it down like before something blows up they managed to catch it it definitely doesn't reach like a a critical mass like how you've seen in a lot of other black cities I've seen it in oakland seen it in la seen it a little bit in detroit even new york right. And something about Atlanta, niggas are just like, ah, let me chill out. (laughs) (laughs) The city of Atlanta is not going to host Freaknik. It is not an event that uh, uh, we feel is appropriate for our city. And if they can't deal with Freaknik, how are they going to deal with the 96 Olympics? Remember, the city too busy to hate was a phony slogan anyway. Right. Ultimately, to get to a point where how do you control chaos? Everyone likes to think that progressive until you've got 10,000 black folks sitting in your front yard. (laughs) That's the reality of it. (laughs) I'm Chris Frierson, a documentary filmmaker based in New York City by the way of the greatest state in America shaped like a human hand, Michigan. Welcome to Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. It, it got bad or something? Yeah, it got bad. Uh, well, I don't want nobody. You can interview somebody else for that part. <laughs> I don't know about that part. <laughs> but, but, I can, but I can understand why. Because it was out of control. Like, to me, like, I was skeptical of it then. Like, this is too much. Like I'm going to speak very bluntly. When you see, like, your people having, like, a big-ass celebration and you see things that are like that, the thing you said about, man, I hope nobody fucks this up. Yeah. Because it could be, like, one person... You hear what I said? I said, I hope, I hope we don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I was, that, was, that was a code. Like, yeah. We don't, because yeah, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's like, it's embarrassing. like, like, like we get we get given an opportunity to live, but then you have one knucklehead, or one somebody that the people around them, not that's what it was, the people around each other was controlling. Because everybody has somebody to get a little too drunk, but you got to have somebody like, man. Chill. Chill. I'm too much fun right now, boy. You don't fuck it up with everybody. Rico apparently had no idea that Freaknik got quote-unquote bad, so to speak. George Hawthorne, who at the time was running the mall and club district commonly known as Underground Atlanta, gave me the lowdown on how the city felt from his perspective when Freaknik quote-unquote took over the city. 94, 95, it exponentially kind of grew until 96 was probably the height of about 200 plus thousand kids coming there. We kind of took the position that we didn't want to have that kind of a crowd and we'll say that kind of a crowd because if you, if you remember in 92 we had the Rodney King riots. We the jury in the above entitled action find the defendant Lawrence M. Powell not guilty find the defendant Timothy E. Wind not guilty find the defendant Theodore J. Brasino not guilty find the defendant Stacey C. Kuhn not guilty 
know your city pretty well, the fact that those police officers have been put on alert anticipates a reaction to a not guilty verdict? I don't think there's much doubt that there's going to be quite a reaction. I think this was a stunning verdict. Over a dozen people are dead and unrest has leapt across the country to Atlanta, Georgia. That actually caused major financial impact at Underground. And really? So, yeah, yeah. There was a few, you know, the rioters came through there, broke out windows, took out a lot of stores. At Atlanta's University Center, students who had been demonstrating all day were confronted by National Guardsmen trying to prevent them from leaving the campus. The shouting turned into an exchange of rocks and bottles from one side and tear gas from the other. So there was like a uprising in Atlanta Yes. After Rodney King? After I, Rodney I, King, I really yes. didn't even know that. This morning, Atlanta Mayor Maynard Jackson called a meeting of all AU Center presidents and the Atlanta PD to plead for calm. He wants to calm things down so people won't run up in the underground anymore and they won't lose any more money. And that's the easiest way he can do that, just calm things down real fast. Yeah, we had a mindset that, you know, large group of African-American youth could be volatile in an environment. And so we kind of took the position that, you know, we have to welcome this, you know, me being an African-American manager, I mean, I can't sit and say I can't have my people come into the mall. Right. But we had a major security kind of a impetus of making sure that we kept order and didn't let things get out of hand and the zero tolerance policy for foolishness. And, you know, it get to a point where how do you control chaos? Because... Ultimately, Freak Nick never had an organizer. There was sporadic events by multiple people across various venues across the city, between the parks, the streets, the clubs. And there was a major, uh, uh, I guess, direction from the city that we wanted to kind of try to corral this thing and mm -hmm. get control of it because it, it was causing a public uh, safety concerns. And so we were in a... Uh, conundrum at that point when right. you had this African-American based youth event and I, don't, I can't even call it an event it's a gathering right and it had no controls it had no direction had no specific agenda and it was basically a rolling road show and a party right and you know like I always said that you know how do you control chaos right and we tried to do that and eventually had to just give it up. <laughs> right. I really like I, I like the term that you said, uh, uh, zero tolerance policy for foolishness. Yes, yes, yes. You had to. I mean, the event was started by the HBCU students and in Atlanta having five historical black colleges in a campus and the epitome of what a HBCU was. We never wanted to be perceived as a place that was intolerant of our black students. To the OGs, when Freaknik began at the AUC, it was somewhat of a wholesome gathering, which is probably what Sharon Toomer and the DC Metro Club thought about when they started this shit. Understandably, 15 years later, she totally wasn't down with the city trying to kill something that she started. It became problematic for the city because it clogged up streets. It was disruptive in a way that they weren't prepared for. And so... I wrote a piece uh, for the AJC to give some backstory, to give some some layout of mm -hmm. what it is that, that this has evolved to. And the pushback from the city was problematic to me because how do you shut down, how do you shut out people from this city? And if they can't deal with Freaknik, how are they going to deal with the 96 Olympics? You had to realize that Freaknik and the Olympics were two totally dynamic 
uh, uh, events where the Olympics was very scheduled. You had venues A, B, C, D around right. the uh, state and around the city that you had scheduled events. So you knew you're going to have at this point, you're going to have 40,000 people over here. You're going to have 50,000 people over here. So then I started taking a more advocacy role around this event and organizing role. So part of the thing with Freaknik, it wasn't like there were a bunch of concerts. It wasn't like, you know, you have a music festival. Yeah. And people came to ride in the street. It wasn't like they, on some like Coachella shit where no. it's like, here's <laughs> no. like, this is when Red Hot Chili Peppers are going to be no, on. And, the, like, and we're all in this. Right. Yeah. Freaknik was one of these situations where you could have something going on that wasn't scheduled or anything and end up with 25,000 people right. in a urban environment in the middle of the streets actually stopping in the middle of the streets partying. And so it was a whole different dynamics of how do you control and how do you, you know, work with that situation. So I got together with promoters, a couple marketers to really map out something that would actually alleviate some of the the clog mm-hmm. right and it got pretty contentious you know we did a lot of legwork and our intentions were good but it became real clear that the city just didn't want it right that you just can't tell people they can't come to the city you just right. can't do that and you certainly can't tell black people that they can't come to this city right right so caroline aka the white nisha had told me about this amazingly eccentric, gun-toting proprietor of this beauty shop that both she and her mother would visit back in the day. So when we were back at our parents' crib in Decatur... Wait, 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 you're not supposed to do that anymore. Do what? So I was reading some reviews on iTunes of the show, and someone wrote that you're trying too hard when you use words like crib and whip. Oh, okay. So when we were back at our parents' house in Decatur, I asked Avril, her mom's, to sort of give me the lowdown on this guy. Over chicken wings, of course. Who's the uh, the guy, the hairdresser guy? Uh, he's a guy that cuts my hair. Um, his name's Christopher. And he has been cutting hair in Atlanta since, I think, the mid to late 80s. Um, and he used to have a salon on Far Road, which is in Buckhead. But he's had clients that used to come in from Alabama. Oh, really? And get their hair done. I mean, he still has a handful that come in from out of town. And then just people that are kind of, it's going to sound awful, but I always say Buckhead Bettys. Wait, what, wait, what is a what Buckhead is Betty? A Buckhead <laughs> Betty is like hmm, somebody that shops at Neiman's. Yeah. And they go to the Piedmont Driving Club, which is the in-town club, right. which you it's well, people are well connected right. and have been there for years and years and years. Didn't know about the Piedmont Driving Club until I was reading, for research for this, I was reading uh, that Tom Wolf book, A Man in Full. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, oh, this is so, I couldn't ascertain if it, like this was a real place because the way he describes it, I was yeah. like, this sounds. Oh, it's on, real. Yeah, it's the next level. It's the last club in Atlanta that was desegregated. I mean, like, totally. and it was like relatively recently, yeah, right? Well, I mean, relatively. Relatively recently. I mean, like, 10, 12, 15 years, something like yeah. that. But it took a long time. Right, right. We stopped by Christopher's Salon, aptly named Christopher's, nested in a quaint mini mall on Piedmont Drive in North Atlanta. A skip hop and a jump from where those aforementioned Buckhead Bettys reside. Caroline's description of the man was legit. As he was cutting hair, the first thing I noticed was a rather large handgun strapped to his waist. 
my Glock 40, simply for protection. The majority of people, we all get along. Right. You know, unless you're in the car, then it's all fair game. So speaking of cars, when was uh, Freaknik first brought on your radar? I was invited to a black tie, and I had a convertible Saab. 900? Yes, 900S. Well played. And my friend that I was with had long, blonde, curly hair. And all of a sudden, we turned this corner at Woody's Cheese Steak, and we stopped. And you didn't think anything of it until then you noticed that there were thousands of people all around you, hanging out, partying, relaxing, listening to music, and then another 10 minutes passed, and then it was an hour, and these guys started calling on my blonde and saying stuff. Then the girls who were in front of the car started calling the boys sweet. And I guess in that time, that was a term for gay men. Yeah. Then they started coming up and then they realized that this was a guy and they got a little attitude about it. And I was just like, yo, that's my bitch. You were talking to my bitch. I said, so why were you calling my bitch and now you figure out that my bitch is, you know, Right. And, and, they, <laughs> and they started laughing and it was like I said you have those pretty ladies right there they could all be blonde in a matter of hours and then it was like everybody was so cool and so much fun and they were laughing the Ritz Carlton downtown had a wedding the Saturday of Freak Nick right. the mother of the bride did not make it to her daughter's wedding because she was stuck for four hours on Peachtree Street. Being a hairdresser in Buckhead since I was 20 has been a huge experience. In 96, you could not drive the streets of Buckhead, downtown Atlanta, midtown Atlanta, and it actually caused where you couldn't get fire trucks and police vehicles to emergencies. And so that became a major issue. And then you had the other economic impacts that it caused in downtown, where a lot of the businesses, which was, you know, Atlanta at that point in time, we were just preparing for the Olympics in 92, 93, 94. And we were on the world stage and trying to create a global image of Atlanta, of one of the city of too busy to hate. I was particularly glad to see the promise of nonviolence and of a peaceful approach. This is of the greatest importance to the city of Atlanta, which proudly proclaims to the world that it is a place too busy with progress to tear itself apart with hatreds, with recriminations, and destructive violence. Although I had heard it before, the term city too busy to hate came up a lot as I started getting deep into Atlanta's history. It's an old slogan. Jim Achimudi, AJC gangster, an Atlanta native schooled me on it. Atlanta's infamous, famous motto is the city too busy to hate, and it was popularized in the late 1950s under the administration of William Hartsfield, 
who was the mayor for a long time. His name is half of the airport, Hartsfield-Jackson. Looking back at that uh, slogan from our time, it seems ludicrous. Being too busy to hate, that's a pretty damn sorry excuse for not hating. The only reason it makes sense is when you consider it in in some context. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, other cities, rivals of Atlanta's in the South, notably Birmingham and Little Rock, were most definitely not too busy to hate. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. They had very public displays of hatred. Uh, the desegregation in Little Rock, the, you know, the, the, the police dogs and fire hoses in Birmingham in 1963. You can never whip these boys if you don't keep you and them separate. I found that out in Birmingham. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. Atlanta very purposely and Mayor Hartsfield were trying to tell the rest of the world and, and the rest of the country that Atlanta is a place that cares so much about its reputation and its being a solid place to do business that we are not going to loose the police dogs on folks, no matter what. Well, I have had uh, some conversations with some of the downtown merchants. Everything is quiet this morning, and that is what we want in our downtown section. We do not want it to be a battleground. We're just not going to do ugly stuff like that. You don't have to worry about us. We're going to be stable. It's an image thing. It's an image thing, of course. We're the city too busy to hate, but our motto really ought to be we're the city too busy with our image to hate. Of course, that is not a a transcendent human rights motto, particularly looking back 60 years later. (laughs) The slogan had this weird double entendre. Disclaimer, Savannah made me use the term double entendre. Nah, 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 fuck that shit. You're going to read what I wrote. But anyway, Ron Baer author of my favorite beach read, Race in the Shaping of 20th Century Atlanta, denounced that shit. Remember, the city too busy to hate was a phony slogan anyway. It was 1957. Mayor Hossfield was deeply segregationist, but he thought he could use the black vote to get elected. So he did some things for blacks, but only up to a certain point. Right. But that slogan stayed with the city, but it's it's not true. It never was true. The real slogan should be, uh, Atlanta is too interested in business to hate. On surface level, it means that you're too busy to hate, which still is representative of something that's like, oh, I still hate you, but I'm doing business. And I think that's actually how it probably worked out in in the practical application of it is, is that the business community uh, recognized that they couldn't have the strife uh, that was taking place throughout the South, uh, especially in Birmingham, and still do business, and still attract companies uh, to come into Atlanta. Maynard said that's good and fine, but, you know, we have to be participants in this process. We have to earn some of the money, and, the, and, we, should, and we have to have elections uh, that will enable um, members of the black community to serve in city government and county government. That was Michael Harvey, the Freaknik lawyer. But more on that later. We've talked shop about the intersectionality between Freaknik and higher education, politics, hip-hop, feminism, and murders. But this whole city-too-busy-to-hate thing got me thinking. Freaknik challenged Atlanta and pushed the city's business-minded buttons. Big Business George gave me the insider tip. I think that's part of what we had to deal with. You know, there was a a major uh, 
social conflict between the black and the white business community. Mm. And at some point between older African-Americans and the young generation that was actually participants in Freaknik, we had clashes in there. And it, I mean, Can it you was talk about that a little bit? In the early days of Freaknik, I, when I, not the early days, I say the middle days, 90, the 90s, 92, 93, 94, there was a position of trying to embrace African-American kids. And we had the, you know, the clergy and the black leadership saying, hey, these are African-American kids, uh, students. They need to be able to enjoy Atlanta. We cannot, you know, turn them away and we need to embrace this culture. Back at the salon on some Southern hospitality shit, Christopher offered me a beverage and we got to talking about one of the driving business forces in the city. Do you need a Coca-Cola? No, I'm fine. (laughs) And in Atlanta, if you're really going with the South, there's no such thing as Pepsi. But Pepsi infiltrated the Super Bowl this year. Yeah. But look at the Super Bowl. It sucked. (laughs) Just saying. It was the worst Super Bowl ever. It was boring just because of Pepsi. What is Coke to Atlanta? You're smiling. It's a lot. It's a a lot lot. of power. It is Atlanta, isn't it? Yeah, it is Atlanta. I mean, the people, the families are all still here. A lot of them that really took it off the ground. They're all very philanthropic people, drive through Emory and it's building after building that put up Coca-Cola. And the history of Robert Woodruff and what he did, Birmingham was having horrendous race riots. And Robert Woodruff went to the governor, the mayor, and said, whatever it takes, Money-wise, if you overspend and can't pay, we want to keep the peace in Atlanta. We're making the foundation that it's not going to be like everywhere else in the South, which is, I mean, amazing. Ace traffic writer and all-around great guy, Doug Monroe, had a bit to offer about Robert Woodruff and his legacy in Atlanta as well. Robert Woodruff was the great genius who expanded Coke. They call him Mr. Anonymous. He gave great sums of money to charities throughout Atlanta, always anonymously. But when Martin Luther King Jr. won the Nobel Peace Prize, all of the leaders of Atlanta wanted to snub him. And Robert Woodruff got on the phone. And when Robert Woodruff called, everybody answered. And he said, get your ass to this dinner we're having for Dr. King. Coca-Cola was and still is Atlanta's pride and joy. We drove by its headquarters in a car, not a whip, on our jaunt with Morrell. Damn. So we're rolling, we're getting into the city. Damn. Is that Coca-Cola's main, like... Yeah, that's a corporate office, yeah. Damn. What's, what's Coca-Cola meant to the city? Damn. Shit, I guess a lot, goddamn. We drink Coke. Maybe the shit be on sale every day. It's Coke big, man. Nobody got a problem with Coke. Coke cool. They don't not they don't all the air right there. I mean, I don't know what they do as far as with the community, but you know, they they cool, man. They 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 got some good ass parties, I can tell you that much. You'd think a brand like Coke would want to capitalize on a bajillion kids coming to town for Freaknik and buying shit. But Sharon told me otherwise. We talked Coca-Cola, but the politics of Freaknik is something 
that interfered with any organization. How did those conversations like come to be? The Coca-Cola, Freaknik, possible we had, collab? Um, uh, one of my long-term friends was in that world. And she mapped out a great marketing plan. And she made arrangement for us to go talk with Coca-Cola. So we had professionals. This was not like, let's just try this. Let's see what happens. We actually had a plan. If it were Pepsi, they would have been all over it. <laughs> what? 200,000? This demographic? I mean, you know, they're all drinking soda and we're just not going to do anything? I mean, it's, that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense. Because even if you think Meaning about... Meaning sense, like dollar sense, right. right? But the city inserted itself in that. I believe that had the city not been so dogged, that there could have been some relief. It would not have been a total relief, like, you know, total, but there could have been some organization of this event to help smooth out some areas. But there was nothing. Right. It was clear that there was an organized anti-Freaknik effort coming out of City Hall. Then you had those in the uh, white community that said, well, you're actually impacting business. The flashpoint that brought it to a head was at that point in time, the Atlanta hospitality industry mm-hmm. was probably one of the leading uh, sources of economic growth in the city. You've had hoteliers and tourism and conventions. We were becoming that destination for visitors, leisure travelers, and a destination for uh, conventions at that time. And we had a convention, the 100,000 plus person convention that used to come to, to Atlanta on annual basis. And the economic impact that you figure you get 100,000 people spending five, just $500 during their visit through the convention is a $50 million impact to the city of Atlanta. And in 96, when the conventioners couldn't get to the convention, they threatened to leave. Uh, So that had a major impact in the Atlantic Convention and Visitors Bureau had a lot of social and political pull within the city because they had driven so much economic growth into the city through conventions. And so the economics of losing a convention for a 200,000-person, 100,000-person rolling road show where you probably have the kids spend $100 over the week and they're going to... You have to balance that. You know, the mayor, Bill Campbell at that time, and I mean, he was really put in a, in a bad position. It's probably going to be on my, uh, my tombstone. You kill <laughs> Bill Campbell, a dude we've lightly touched upon already, was mayor during Freaknik in the mid-90s. Like the mayors before him, thanks to Maynard, he was Afro-American. But also thanks to Maynard, he had an economic powerhouse to run. During that period of time, Bill was on a balancing beam between the interest of the business community, the interest of the black community, and the political implications of creating an image that that he's against black folks in a black majority town. Everyone is welcome in the city of Atlanta. We expect everyone to obey the law. The laws will be enforced. The statement comes after a stormy meeting with Clark Atlanta University students. Students who believed Campbell was trying to cancel Freaknik. I mean, what is he going to do, stop every black uh, college student he sees coming into Atlanta and telling me, can I enter the city? 
It's totally ludicrous. I mean, that really had an impact on how he decided to move ahead. And, and if you look in the archives, you'll find that in 96, after the, I mean, we had that the 200, 200,000 person plus event, he had actually tried to pull out the, you know, disregard and, and get Freaknik out of the city. And he got a major backlash from the black community. And I mean, even to the point where his political opponents were using that as a political uh, speech and a position against him. Who was running against him at the time? Uh, Marvin Arrington, the president of the city council okay. at that point in time. If you remember, we spoke to Marvin Arrington Jr. about Maynard in episode three. And so while his pops was rallying against Campbell in the race for mayor, Marvin Jr. was running his own hustle at Freaknik that low-key contradicted Campbell's balance beam. To some, Freaknik proved to be an economic powerhouse in and of itself. You know, one of the things we were doing, we were making T-shirts. So every year for Freaknik, we would make a different batch of T-shirts and go out and sell, you know, two, three hundred T-shirts and, you know, make two, three thousand dollars and, you know, be a little excited. But um, when did you decide that, like, you were going to monetize the situation? So in, in 94, we were, shoot, we, we, had, I, we had finals the next day and I was out um, selling t-shirts that night uh, at Freak Nick, uh, out in the streets trying to sell the last few shirts. How did you do in the finals? Um, I did I did okay, um, you know. Uh, I probably could have done better had I not been sent out that night if I had been brushing up, but um, I, I didn't fail any classes in law school and I finished in three years and Passed the bar the first time, so, you know, I, I, I did all right. So, you know, you're selling T-shirts at Freaknik. Wherever your T-shirt stand was, like, what you were seeing. Just, you know, waves and waves of black people. And frankly, the city and the state, someone should have found a way to really measure the economic impact, right? Because, you know, I had all these people come stay in my house. We went to a grocery store. We bought groceries. And I was one of 10,000 people that were doing the same thing, right. right? How was Mayor Campbell, like, dealing with the situation at the time? I mean, Bill Campbell shut Freaknik down. Before we headed down to ATL, my homegirl from BK... See what I did just there? Recommended that on the trip, we should link up with her homeboy, Scott Morris, a.k.a. DJ Dookie Platters, an Atlantan historian of sorts. We pulled up on him in his lofty loft space near downtown on Martin Luther King Drive. Classic. I know. What's good, bro? Hey, how's it going, man? What's good, bro? Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, this is my... I like I like I like the vibe, bro. <laughs> it was uh, they made uh, mattresses here in the twenty, like the springs for mattresses, yeah. and then there was a cotton mill down the road, and they like they would stuff mattresses and car seats, like upholstery with the um, cotton. Told y'all this dude was a historian. So after pleasantries were exchanged, and we hung and listened to some records for a while, in some true southern hospitality fashion, shit. Dude started making us chicken wings. This legit was the second time homemade chicken wings had been prepared for your humble narrator within a week. Do you want Budweiser? I'm fucking moving to Atlanta. I like do wings a lot. I was like really looking into how to get crispier wings. So this, uh -huh. 
what I did was I cooked these like on low heat last night. Okay. I cooked them all through, cooked all the way through, but I yeah. want the skin crispy. And so what I was reading is like the fat collects under the skin if you do that, and then you fry them again. Oh. So it's like double fried and that. So you just kind of let them rock and then let it all like gather, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You cool it off and then and then you fry them again, and then that's like gets like the then the fat like really cooks gotcha. under the skin to crisp it up. I hope it's gonna work. Let's I'm see. excited. Savannah was excited. But more on that later. These are delicious. Mmm. I I'm glad. The level of spice. Oh, good, good. I should have asked if everybody was okay with spice. No, no, this, these are great. Thank you, bro. So I know, huh? Because the sound of someone eating on a podcast is going to sound disgusting. Oh, yeah. Stop. Oh, you're fine. It's, yeah, he's just me. So, for the listeners' edification, we stop for a minute to actually enjoy this delicious meal before getting down to brass tacks, as they say. I mean, it's Bill Campbell's Atlanta at that time, and he's, yeah, there was like a lot of people coming into Atlanta for, for something like Freak Night. I mean, this is a big question, but when you say it was Bill Campbell's Atlanta, what is Bill Campbell's Atlanta? What does that mean? Well, so Bill Campbell went to jail after he was the mayor. A city ethics panel is investigating accusations that Campbell took unreported trips in private planes owned by city contractors. The mayor also is under an FBI investigation. And I think that what that means is that you had developers and council people and a mayor who were kind of like on the take, mm -hmm. I guess, a little bit. You know, I, I don't know, like fully, you know, someone's probably done more research and writing about that but that's the you know that's the mayor that ended up going to jail so it, it seems like the type of place that if if you were in interested in getting a permit for something during freak nick like you probably just had to pay for it you know there probably wasn't like someone that was going to tell you no right. you can't have like a run dmc concert like on the roof of your car like or whatever you want, yeah. You know, whatever crazy thing someone wanted to do, they were probably just like, "Sure, go with it." Like, do you have the money? Like, here's the permit. Right. Like that kind of thing. Okay. In your estimation, like obviously in hindsight, but also like living through that period of time in the '90s, like what was, like who was Bill Campbell? He's the mayor of Atlanta. Um, he had a little mustache like John Waters. Um, he was. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, like, he did. Um, yeah, he was the mayor. Scott's tale about Campbell's demise gave me a little bit more insight into why he was so hard to track down. Steve Labovitz, his chief of staff, spoke on behalf of City Hall. We met with Steve at his office on the top floor of the SunTrust Plaza. It's a tall ass building with beautiful views. The city was uh, not prepared for it in 94. I remember trying to leave City Hall and go home. It was a Friday afternoon, and it took me four hours to usually a 20, 25-minute ride. And the streets were all clogged. It was embarrassing. You know, there were... Uh, you know, I, I, you know, you you have memories and vividly remember just seeing women just taken off their bras and you know it was driving home in convertible beautiful weather when they came and it was a uh, you know it was it was it was something no one knew it was going to be what it was and the city was not really prepared so in city hall 
while this is going on, like how did that sort of manifest itself? Like how was it like? We tried to do the best. We tried to monitor it, but it was it was some it grew much bigger than than what anybody anticipated happened the year before. Right. Traffic was backed up all the way on the interstates. So we're looking over. What's this right here? This is this this is the interstate 75-85. The intersection. This is where they meet. The junction of 75 and 85. And so you know, right now it looks like traffic is moving pretty. It's well, moving, although coming in coming in, it's it's a little bit heavier than leaving. And you're saying that if we were sitting up here, it, it would you know, be 25 years ago on that weekend. That would be a standstill. And that would be a standstill. Exits were a standstill. People were getting out of their car and jamming, and it was crazy. And, you know, uh, they didn't want to get out of their car. Right. It was really an event where people just stayed in their cars. And just, you know, radios blasting. It was, like I said, great weather. So the next year, uh, Mayor Campbell... You know, everybody wanted them to do something about it. Right. The white community wanted them to do something about it because the businesses were, you know, they were really... Hemorrhaging? Hemorrhaging because they weren't really, you know, the hotels weren't really gaining because people weren't staying in the hotels. The only businesses that really loved it were the car washes. But these three businessmen say Freaknik was no problem at all. The men owned this car wash on Peachtree, and during Freaknik, it's a tradition to get your car cleaned up so you can cruise down Peachtree Street. But the business community, downtown business community, wanted it changed. The state wanted it changed. And interestingly enough, the presidents of the universities wanted it changed. And they wanted something done because they felt it was demeaning to the students and to the black community. So everybody was coming to Campbell to try to make sure that they contained it. We closed off roads so that they couldn't get off certain exits of the entrances to the city. It was, you know, our police department was very involved. It was a different kind of event. But the, those who attended did not have as good a time and they were upset about it. And it was a very interesting time because for Campbell, I'll never forget this as long as I live. He looked at me and said, for you, you're going to go home and be a hero. I'm going to go home and be a pariah. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. As a black man, Campbell owed it to his people to hold it down. As the mayor, he had to hold the city down. So he had to make a choice. The Freaknik lawyer didn't really vibe with that choice. Well, in, in 94, the community began to say that, that the students should not be allowed to come back um, to Atlanta. When you say community, what do you mean by community? White business community. Was there any backlash? You know, people often speak of, uh, in terms of Atlanta, uh, in regards to, you know, the black elite class. Was there any backlash from them? To your knowledge? Well, the, the mayor, I think, felt the pressure, and he agreed with them because as we got closer to, to Freaknik 1995, the mayor announced that there would be a crackdown. The city of Atlanta is not going to host Freaknik. It is not an event that uh, uh, we feel is appropriate for our city. I thought that was wrong. 
I thought as long as um, students were coming to the metropolitan Atlanta area to have a good time on spring break, we ought to allow them to have it. He declared that he would, you know, arrest kids for any type of lawlessness, and they were going to crack down on them. And uh, this was like early spring, or like this was early spring when uh, this is early spring, nineteen ninety-five. Now, I countered that by getting Gate City Bar Association to agree to represent students who were arrested. Um, but, and as it turns out, you know, nobody volunteered to do that but me. Right. Props to Harvey for taking one for the team. By the way, he recently wrote a fire book entitled Freaknik Lawyer, a memoir on the craft of resistance. That's Freaknik Lawyer, a memoir on the craft of resistance. Get your copy today. So there was mad resistance going down toward the end of Freaknik. And Bill tried to package things up with the Spring Break Planning Committee. Bill took a strategic approach that, okay, I'm getting all this blacklash, let me put it that way. <laughs> blacklash <laughs> for trying to, you know, keep be everybody's mayor. I need to do something, uh, you know, affirmative action that would create, at least we're trying to work with them. Right. And that's when he created the Black College Spring Break Planning Committee. This time, says Mayor Campbell, a planning committee has set up three days of concerts, festivals, and job fairs at the AU Center and throughout the city. Bill, being a strategic thinker that he was, said, okay, let's put this group together to kind of, you know, try to get some order to this thing. How did you, how did you get tapped into it? Uh, my relationship with Bill, and he was looking to make sure that he had supporters on this committee to, you know, make sure it didn't go left on it politically. And so Bill just called you and was like, yo. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yo, we, <laughs> I need you to sit on this thing and let's see if we can pull this thing together. Right. I thought the freak Nick shut itself down. Word. I thought it just turned into like a 95 was had the rapey vibe and 96, none of the girls showed up. I remember those two freak Nicks kind of playing it real loose. It's 95, they um they started this uh we're gonna make the streets into like a maze so that the police department got smart and they um they would divert traffic away from wherever the fun was. Wherever you were trying to get to. They had the flyers to all the events and some shit and they're like, well, the hot event is at this thing, so make it so that you whatever you do, you can't get to that street. I don't know if it was ninety five or ninety six, but the the cones and the and the blocked off streets would lead you to the freeway. And then the freeway, once you got on it, all the exits and on-ramps and off-ramps would be closed all the way till you get outside the city. <laughs> That's fucking genius. <laughs> we, have to, we have to find the dude who came up with that shit. <laughs> that is a genius So you'd be like, I, mean, I know a shortcut, I know a shortcut. And then the fucking shit leads you to the freeway. You're like, fuck. So they came back in 96. And they were met with the same uh, show of force and resistance. But I think it was the repression, uh, which is is what the city wanted to do. They want to make Atlanta an uh, unwelcoming and uninviting um, venue for college students spring break. They had made their point, and uh, the numbers began to dwindle in terms of the number of people who were in the city right. uh, during during that, that time period. I mean, how unfortunate. Is that, you know, say I was coming down from Michigan in, in 1997 and being met with barricades 
in a black city, in a black Mecca. White state patrolmen blocking you away from entering the city, causing you to run around the perimeter. You can't get off anywhere, and you can't get gasoline. And eventually, you know, you're stuck on the um, on the expressway. So a lot of kids got stuck on the expressway because they ran out of gas. And of course, they're hungry and they got to use the restroom. You know, and you get arrested. And you get arrested. Campbell, Hawthorne, and their crew, including Police Chief Beverly Harvard, were the geniuses behind the traffic plan that fucked up too short shit. Doug Monroe, the most baller traffic writer the game has ever seen, explained to me his theory. And so here's a million people coming to town for the Olympics. This is a boom city, a city that prides itself on its progressive attitude toward race and its forward-looking approach to business. So Atlanta now has its games, and it also has its opportunity to define itself for the world. And so the cops and the Department of Transportation really used the public relations ploy to use that fear to keep people uh, out of town and following the traffic plan. And so I think, you know, maybe they're just making this up to scare people. Then mention what had happened during Freaknik when things stopped. And so the traffic plan was to get people to board buses in the suburbs, these great big lots, and then take a bus into town. The problem was they hired these people who didn't know Atlanta to ride, drive the buses. So these buses lost and going around and around. And uh, so there were some problems, but there wasn't the massive traffic that right. they kept warning about. So I think the, the, the officials used the hysteria that built up over Freaknik to make people afraid of the Olympic traffic. And as a result, the Olympic traffic plan worked fine. <laughs> so and then there weren't. There it's a, it's a, you, one would never imagine that a event such as Freaknik had helped in the sort of logistical yeah, planning think, of the Olympics. That's all the cops had to say. Well, remember Freaknik, and then everybody, woo. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a race issue. It's a respect issue. I'm totally against it. You know, it disrupts the neighborhood. It stops up traffic. And as a, as a homeowner, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't agree with it at all. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that, you know, the city has to deal with this. Back at Scott's apartment, while we were fucking up those chicken wings, we chatted about white Atlanta. You know, I talked to Doug and Christopher about white people being mad and weddings getting fucked up. But Scott's family seemed a little bit more progressive, in quotes. So I apologize for stealing all the jumps. No, go ahead. Have a good actually usually like the wing. Really? Oh. Yeah. I'm like a I'm a full stop drumstick boy. Wow. Really? I, I don't something about the other ones it, like <laughs> it, it bothers me. Flat. Yeah. Too much work. Yeah. Because like we're on an episode of Hot Ones right now. So like what was your sort of first experience? The first my first well, she was uh, she was my age. Um, we'd been dating for a co- oh my first freak nigga. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in a in a in a nice neighborhood called Morningside. That's like um, ten minutes maybe from downtown. And I I remember people talking. You know, I think it's just like revelry, like people talking about that. But like now, like probably being okay with it i'm sure like my mom and their friends and my dad and their friends probably like thought like i i remember people complaining like i'll say that white people complaining about freak nick and being like oh there's like 
beer bottles in my yard if somebody was like drunk and peeing, pissing in my yard. You know, I've talked to, you know, older black people who had to wrestle internally about should we, who didn't like the representation that was happening at Freaknik, okay. but they also couldn't speak out about it because that's not some Uncle Tom shit. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like this straddling these lines and, and figuring out how you voice concerns because I get it. Um, I, I would say that it would be a more unspoken, but definitely like a cultural disconnect. Like there has not been an event where 30,000 white people were going ham like in downtown Atlanta like that, unless it was the Super Bowl that just happened or some sanctioned shit. Two, I asked my mom, she had like two teenage sons at the time and, and was like in her 40s. And um, my brother fucked up some assignment or something. My sweet mother goes downtown to the Central Library, not really knowing that it's Freaknik, to get this book for my brother and, like, get stuck in the traffic. And she just said it was wild. So Scott's family seemed pretty chill about things. But that cultural disconnect thing he said really resonated. George Hawthorne put it in a pretty hilarious way. So everyone likes to think that progressive until you've got... 10,000 black folks sitting in your front yard. <laughs> That's the reality of it. <laughs> everybody's progressive until, you know, like Mike Tyson would say, everybody's got a plan until you get hit. <laughs> Scott and I called Caroline to say what's up. She promised me she was going to hook me up with a few other white perspectives while I was down here. By the way, this is the infamous Nisha call. Did uh, any of the white people get back to you? My mom will have to call them, but I, like she will be able to get in touch with them. So what's tomorrow? Friday? Tomorrow's Friday, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we have the weekend, so. Yeah, we'll be good. Yeah. I'll at least get you the people that live on Piedmont Park, if not both, but. That would be who you would want to talk to. That's where it went down. That's when I was talking about people like being like, yo, I'm leaving town and stuff. It was people that lived right. where it happened that would like, right. that would be a perfect person to talk to. The perfect people ended up being the Zintax. John and Nancy Zintax, to be exact. They're Caroline's family friends and were actually the last folks we spoke to down there. We met up at their crib near Piedmont Park, and in some true Southern hospitality type shit, Nancy offered us a couple cocktails. So what, what really, as kind of we go chronologically through this, as we were sitting out in the front yard and enjoying ourselves and, you know, watching the show go by... Mm -hmm. It got to a point where Peachtree Street and Piedmont Road and this kind of general area just got very full. And there were lots of people sitting in the cars, some either sitting in the cars, on the cars, dancing on the cars, on top of the cars. And it became kind of a, a, a semi-rolling sort of a party, um, which amused us frankly because to some we it'd be you know six o'clock at night and we go you know we'd have some kids with us and there's a great place to sit up the street we're a quarter of a block from we're a quarter of a block from peach tree we'd walk up there with some with some beach chairs and the kids and we'd go come on let's just go check it out and we'd go walk up there and, and the, you know what else everybody had camera um video um like the camcorders the yeah camcorders, camcorders then at that point, it was a lot of young people having a good time, hanging out, and everything was fine. Right. You know, 
it, it, it really was it, disruptive would not be the right word because it wasn't nobody was hurting anybody. Nobody was having uh, there weren't challenges to it. Now you start, you know, clogging the getting Peachtree Street full. But for us, it was like, ah, whatever, we're just going to walk home and we're good. Right. For us, it was like we're in the middle of the action. <laughs> right. You know, this is this is awesome. And we go. It was entertainment for us. And it really was for the longest time. I wonder what what were the numbers like? Is there a progression? You know what the crazy thing is? No one really has the official numbers. Correct. Because how could you? How could you? It was everywhere. When I was told about the barriers they started putting up in 95, I just pictured myself if I was like, you know, I had somebody in my dorm. I go to Ohio State or whatever. It's like, oh, I went to Freaknik. We all got to go next year. Get in your car, drive down to Atlanta, of all places. And to, I just had this visceral image of being a black kid driving into a city, expecting all these things, not knowing what to actually expect, but just yeah. this beautiful celebration and just seeing physical barriers preventing you. And to me, that it's really sad. And I don't understand how. I believe that Atlanta made a mistake or missed an opportunity when they voted for him. I didn't say that just because I work for his opponent. I say that because that's your that's your answer to this. That's the that's the best you can come with come up with is to erect barriers uh, and 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 keep people out and you know pretty much tell them don't come here. That to me is not leadership. Atlanta. Next time on Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. You know, we could have had the largest free African American music festival, R&B festival, or hip hop festival in the world in Atlanta on that weekend. You're really keeping away an event that could bring the city millions of dollars because you don't like the term Freaknik. And you so now to, you're just kind of pulling over at gas stations and looking for black people and trying to find somebody and be like, hey, where the, where the freak Nick at? Hey, guys, this is Chris. If you've been listening, you probably know I've missed a lot of shit. So right now we're providing the opportunity for you to tell your own freak Nick stories. And we set up this cool guy freak Nick hotline, which you can reach at 646-693-0654. If you have a dope story or just want to call me on my shit, you and yours could be featured in a future episode. That's 646-693-0654. Drop us a line. Freaknik, A Discourse on a Paradise Lost is a production of Mass Appeal and Endeavor Audio. Created, produced, and narrated by myself, Christopher Frierson. Executive produced by Chris Colbert of DCP Entertainment. Produced by the one and only Savannah Jeffries, Mark Grandy, and Matt Graylin of Mass Appeal. Edited by Cher Vincent, Keith Meminger, and the dude with the best name in the office, Chris Bravo. Executive produced by Dave Easton and produced by Hannah Cope of Endeavor Audio. Technical producer, Nick Pacciano. Assistant edited by Jefferson Espedia and Louis San Giorgio. Archival production by Jillian Bergman. Associate producers, Jackie Garofano, Brandon Tago, Adele Coleman, and John Klonowski of DCP Entertainment. We were mixed by the lovely Sue Polino. Music supervision by Carolyn Mislove. And our finishing producer was Stephanie Pacciano. Thanks again, Steph. And last but not least, talent booking and all-around support, the Honorable Roberta Magrini.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.